Uh, go ahead and turn them to Psalm 18. 1 8 is where we are going to be. Uh, you know, from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, we see that God cares for his people. He protects them, he saves them, he strengthens them. And in Psalm 18, David calls God his rock. He says, you're my place of refuge, my fortress, my strength. And so this is my prayer. So as we come into this text, that we would join David in praising God as our rock and refuge. My prayer is that we would know the comfort that David knows here, the joy that David knows here of God being his rock. And so the main point of the sermon is that God is a mighty warrior who is always faithful to save and strengthen his people from all who oppose them. And so uh, what I want to do is just start with context, um, because we actually know quite a bit about Psalm 18 because of another passage. In 2 Samuel 22, which, uh, just real quick, 1 Samuel is primarily about the life of Saul. 2 Samuel is primarily about the life of David. There you go, quick summary. At the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 22, David writes a song, and it's almost verbatim with Psalm 18. And I mean almost word for word going right through it. And so this is what we read at the beginning of that song. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of of Saul. So we don't know if if Psalm 18 was written before that or after that, but it appears that it's going to have the same context where David is now looking back over his life and he's looking at all the ways that God has been his rock, his protector, his fortress. And so now he's recounting that for us that we also would share in the praise of God being our rock. And so I thought just a quick recap on the life of David, just to make sure we we all kind of just remember a little bit of, of what he went through. So David was the second king of Israel. Uh, Saul was the first king, and Saul was rejected because he continually disobeyed God. And because God rejected him from kingship, and, and Saul knew that David was going to be the next king, Saul hated David. I mean, he hunted him, and he hunted him for years, and David ran uh, and hid in the wilderness, hid in caves. There was a bounty on his head. But God was faithful and continued to preserve him, continued to save him, continued to strengthen him. Eventually, Saul died, David became king, and then uh, David would make war against all the surrounding nations in the land that God had given him, that the land of Israel would be ruled by the kingdom of Israel, by the kingdom of God. And so he was constantly at war, but God was always faithful in giving him victory and strengthening him to give him the land that God had promised. At the end of his life, We know that his son Absalom raised up against him, thought he should overthrow his father. And so David once again ran from the kingdom, ran for his life. But once again, we see the faithfulness of God, how he strengthened him, how he protected him. And eventually Absalom was killed and David was brought back into the kingdom where he continued to rule. And so David was constantly at war. His life was constantly threatened throughout his entire life. And so he knows what it means for God to be his rock. And sometimes, sometimes the, the, the suffering and the persecution David went through was because of his own sin. We all know the story of Bathsheba, um, but oftentimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was simply 
um, he was suffering and experiencing persecution as he obeyed God. So it's good for us to know that pre- the presence of suffering and trials in our life is not always the immediate result of our sin. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just simply the consequence of living in this world. A world characterized by sin, a world characterized by darkness. Jesus said in John 15, the world hated me, and therefore if you love me and follow me, it will hate you also. And so there are times in our obedience that we will simply experience sufferings and trials, not because of our sin, but because of the very world in which we live in. But what David wants us to know is that no matter what we go through, Whether it's the consequence of our sin or not, God is our rock. And he wants us to to know this truth, that God is a mighty warrior who always saves his people. And so we are going to dive in here. It is 50 verses long. We're not going to read all of it because that's just, we're not going to do that. I know some of you are disappointed because we love to stand when we read. Uh, We're not going to read all 50 verses, but we are going to read some. But before we do that... Uh, I want to give the outline of the text, and so I, I put a slide up here that um, walks through the outline of this psalm. And so what I really want to encourage you to do is write down that outline, because it's not in your bulletin, and read the psalm, the psalm later, and just continue to read it with this outline, and just notice the flow of the psalm. But it begins and ends with the praise of God as David's rock. That's how it begins and ends. And then you, you move in a little bit. And it's God saves David, and then at the, the second to end, it's God strengthens David. And we're going to see that. The way that God is our rock is sometimes he saves us, and other times he strengthens us, and we're going to see how those work together. But then we come to this middle portion, which is really the main point of the psalm, that God is faithful to save his people. And we're going to see that and what that looks like. And how do we have that assurance in our salvation also? Uh, so what we're going to do now is I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And we're going to read more, but right now we're only going to read verses 1 through 6, and that's all I'll make us stand for. But we do stand, and I say this every week because I want us to know it. And I want you to be able to tell other people, if anyone ever asks, why did you guys stand? We don't do that. It's just simply a way to remind ourselves this word, this book is different than every other book that there is. It's inspired by God, comes with his full authority, and the Holy Spirit uses this word not only to give us faith, but to strengthen our faith. And so it's just, just a means of reminding our own hearts and honoring our God. Chapter 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that in your word, you reveal yourself to us. 
Your greatness, your strength, your might, your power, your sovereignty, your grace, your mercy, your love, your tenderness, your gentleness, your justice, your wrath. Lord, you reveal yourself to us in your word that we would know you, that we would love you. And Lord, we we just praise you that you are a rock and that you promise to always save your people. You are always faithful. Always faithful. May we never doubt that. May we always know you are faithful. And so, Father, we praise you. And Lord, as we come into this text, I pray that we would join David in praising you as our rock. And that we would live a life of obedience to you, knowing that you are faithful knowing that you're always merciful to those who are merciful, knowing that you love your children. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, So we're just going to kind of jump in. First point, God is our rock and our refuge. Again, we see that in the first section, and we see that in the last section of the psalm. But if you look in verse 1 and 2, there's a lot of words that David used to describe God. He says God is his strength. He uses the word rock twice in the opening verses. He says God is his fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, and stronghold. So what's the point? What's he communicating? What's he trying to get across? God is infinitely strong. All of these words are just used to to help us realize the truth. Our God is infinitely infinitely strong and what we see is that david is saying this not in response to a bad day it's not like he just got a fender bender and he comes in or he spilt his coffee today on his pants he's like oh man good thing god is my rock like like god is our rock in those situations but but he is our rock in the large situations also in whatever we find ourselves in in fact if you look at verses four and five we see what has prompted david to praise God this way. He's looking back over his life, a life that was plagued with suffering. And he says, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. I mean, he almost died like a thousand times. Like over and over and over. And he ran from his, for his life, hiding in caves from Saul when he could have attacked him and probably killed him. But he hid because he knew he wasn't to strike the Lord's anointed, the king. And so he hid from him, and he ran for his life over and over. And even at the end of his life, when Absalom came and tried to kill him, he ran for his life. This is a man who knows pain, who knows suffering, who knows rejection, who knows what it's like to have his enemies become, or his friends become his enemies, and hunt him down. And he says, in all of that, God is my rock. God is my fortress. God is my deliverer. God is my strength. And notice in verse 6, he says he cries out to God. And his voice goes to the temple of the Lord where God sits on his mighty hill. And God hears him. Like we can't glaze over that. And we can't just read quickly. God hears him. So we have an infinitely powerful God And yet he's also incredibly present with his people. Do you know that? 
he's present with you, with me. And so, so when you're at home in your house, and when I'm at home in my house, and he hears both of us when we pray. He's infinitely powerful, and he's the rock that you need. He's the rock that I need. He comforts us and strengthens us in every situation. So the God who is infinitely powerful is also incredibly present. That He would always hear our voice. And then, of course, the rest of the song is not just that he hears us, but he responds. Like, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. We have a God. He doesn't just have good desires for your heart. Because, man, I, I really want good things to happen for you but he doesn't have the power to carry it out. But what this song shows, he's an infinitely good God, and his infinite goodness is matched by his infinite power. He's able to carry out the good desires that he has for you because he's infinitely strong. And whatever comes your way is not able to overcome and thwart his plans and will. Uh, but before we, we jump more into the song, it's important, I think, for us just to pause because this is written almost 3,000 years ago. And so David, as the king of Israel, says, God is my rock. And what we want to do if we're not careful is just go, yeah, God's my rock too. But how do we make that jump? Like, how is it that David says it, and why is it true for us today? Like, I just think we need to know that transition. Like, how do we go from 3,000 years ago to us? David as king, and we're not kings, why is this true for us? So if you go to verse 50, so now we're at the end of the psalm. This is what we read. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love. This is his covenant love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Okay, so, so what we have here is this is a kingship psalm, meaning it's applicable to the king and his kingdom. Now, you are not a Jew. Pretty sure not. Um, and we're not a part of Israel, Old Testament Israel, defined by, you know, uh, coming from the line of Abraham uh, through his blood. So why is this applied to us? Because we know who the offspring is. So when it says that he shows steadfast love to his anointed and to David and his offspring forever, we know through the biblical storyline, because it's a story that's given to us, is that there is an offspring coming from David. An offspring that we've been waiting from for all the way since Genesis 3.15 when we were told that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we've been waiting for this offspring and it's been narrowing down and now we see it comes through the line of David. So we're, we're waiting for a king who will come and establish his kingdom. And what we understand is that this king is Jesus. Jesus comes as the ultimate offspring of David. That through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, he would establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And that when we believe in him, we are told that we are saved, forgiven of our sins, and made citizens of his kingdom. This is why we talked about earlier on July 4th, in, the, in the kind of the welcome. We, we love the, the nation that we live in. We celebrate the freedoms that we have. But we need to realize this is not our primary citizenship. We have a much greater citizenship, one in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will last forever. 
And because we are citizens in this kingdom and Jesus is our king, God is always the rock of the offspring of David. And now because Jesus is our king and we're a part of this kingdom, this psalm is true for us as well. Do you see how we walk through that? It's for David, for his offspring, who is his offspring? Jesus established the kingdom of God, the true Israel made of Jews and Gentiles that we would always experience God as our rock and our refuge. So that's how we make that transition from 3,000 years to today. And so I want to encourage you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have the comfort and the joy that God is your rock, that he is your strength, your horn of salvation, your shield of salvation, that no matter where you're at, what you experience, he hears you, he loves you, and God is your protector mighty warrior who will always strengthen you but on the flip side of that if you haven't trusted in christ then god is not the rock who will protect you but he's the rock that will crush you because we've rejected his son jesus and he says for all who have not believed in his son will experience the everlasting wrath of God. So we need to understand that he, he, as a rock, he's the comfort to all who trust in him, to all within his kingdom. But for those who oppose him, for those who reject him, for those who willfully reject the grace of Jesus Christ, at one point, at, at a point in the future, when Christ returns, they will experience God as the rock that crushes them. So what we're going to see now is David's going to make this transition. He goes from God is my rock and now he says, I want to show you how he strengthened me. And so, they're like, remember, just think the outline's moving in on both sides. And so, there's kind of two perspectives that he shows on how God has strengthened him. And so, we're going to look at the first one, and then we'll look at the next one. The first one is God saves by rising from his throne and coming to our rescue. So, what I'm going to do is, like, rapid fire, walk right through verses 7 through 19. So, if you have your Bibles... I'll give you the verse, but we're just going to go right through it. Verse 7, the earth reeled and rocked at the anger of God. The mountains trembled. In verse 8, we see smoke, fire, burning coals all around God, signifying his righteous anger. In verses 9 and 10, we see God rides a chariot of angels as he quickly comes to our rescue. In verse 12, there's hailstones and coals of fire flying through the air in judgment. Verse 13, his voice thunders. In verse 14, he shoots lightning like arrows from a bow. Verse 15, earth is literally like turned inside out at the righteous anger and presence of this mighty God. And in verse 17, God rescues David. What we see is the enemy was great, was far too great for David. But yet, because God is on David's side, there is victory because there is nothing stronger and mightier than God. So here David is just giving us this language that we would be in awe of God. He has prayed and God has risen from his throne. And we see all of creation upheave as God comes to save his anointed, to save the one that he loves, to save those who have placed their faith in him. And what we see in this text is that God is not a part of creation and he's not subject to creation but he rules over creation. 
Those other ones are like pantheism, which is a lot of what Middle Eastern religions will believe. But we have a God who rules over creation and throws lightning like arrows coming from a bow. And the whole earth just seems to undo itself before his presence. And we kind of see that in other parts of the Bible. Like Remember when Daniel goes to the lion's den? Lions are kind of the apex predator of the... Um, of Africa, and yet Daniel is thrown into the lion's den where he's going to surely be killed, and yet because of God's power and strength and that he is the rock in which Daniel trusted in, those, those apex killers became house cats at that moment. And remember the next day the king comes running down and he's like, Daniel, are you okay? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, my God shut the mouths of these lions. And then, remember what happens? So Darius pulls him out, throws in the people who tricked him, and throws them into the lion's den. And the house cats turn back into the apex killers. What we have is God rules over creation. I mean, go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. The very people that threw them into the fiery furnace died because it was so hot. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego eventually come out of the fiery furnace, and it says they don't even smell like smoke. Like we have to realize God rules over all of creation, even over the, the smell of smoke on clothes. Nothing is too great for our God. So when David is sitting here and says, this is our God, when he gets off his throne, he's coming to rescue. And look at verse 19 though. God saved David. Why? Because he delighted in him. Because he loved him. Think like you, you have a child and, and you see them fall down. They're maybe running on, on, on pavement and they fall down and they skin their knee and it's bleeding and they're crying. What does the father do? Man, I guess I have to go pick up my kid. And, oh, man. No, you, you run to the child. Joyfully you're running to the child so that you can pick him up, so that you can put your arms around them. They can feel your love and your care and they would know it's going to be okay. That's the picture that we have here. The father is not coming off his throne going, all right, David, once again, fell down, and now i got to come pick you up. No, he rises from his throne with joy because he loves him, and he comes down that he would pick him up and save him and rescue him. So that's perspective number one. Perspective number two is in verses 31 to 45 where God strengthens us so we would stand firm in all trials. Again, rapid fire. Here we go. Verse 32, the God who equipped me with strength. Verse 34, he trains my hands for war. Verse 35, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Verse 36, you gave me wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. Verse 38, I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. Verse 39, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Do you see the difference in perspectives? One, we have God rising from his throne, running down to rescue his children. And what does that look like? Well, what it often looks like is that God strengthens us in the very trials that we are in. 
I mean, there are sometimes God, I think, just saves us and rescues us apart from ourselves at all. But a lot of times, the means in which we will endure the trials, overcome the trials in which we are in, is not that we are just taken out of them, although that's great when that happens, but that he strengthens us that we would walk obediently in them. And that's what we see here. David is in the war. David's hands have been strengthened. They're falling down at his feet as he fights. But notice verse 32. God equipped me with strength. Verse 39. You equipped me with strength. Who who gets the victory? David is clear. It's all God. Like in the first section, we just see God working powerfully. In the second section, we see God working powerfully through David. But it's all God. It's all his strength working through the life of his children. I think one thing that was helpful for me as I've wrestled with this psalm is realizing we are created to be dependent upon God's strength. Now, in our sin, we don't want that to happen. We want to be independent, but we're created to be in relationship with God, and that's a dependent relationship, that his strength would come to us. I mean, just think through the life of Israel. God saves Israel from Egypt by bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians. Israel had nothing to do with that. He then brings Israel through the Red Sea because he parted the Red Sea. He then brings them through the wilderness for 40 years and he sustained them and strengthened them and clothed them and provided them food for 40 years. He then brings them across the Jordan where they hit Jericho first. Remember that one? And how do they get that victory? By blowing trumpets and a choir. Yeah, good luck, good luck trying to adopt that today, you know? The whole point. God's strength, God's strength, God's strength. Be dependent upon the very strength of God. We were created to be. If you fast forward to kind of the end of the Old Testament, it's like the book of Esther. You have all of the Jews about to be exterminated because of Haman. And yet, what happens? God rescues and saves his people. All throughout the Bible, we have God's people are created to be dependent upon God. In fact, let me, let me read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I, I put this one up on the screen. Um, it says this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Here's what you think. We want to be strong. We love when people look at us and they go, man, that that guy's got it together. Man, that, that guy can do things. He can accomplish things. He can hold everything together. He can hold his family. He can provide. He can do this. I know I love that. I want to be seen as strong. I don't like it as, as, my, as I get older. I realize that I can't work out the same that I used to. Like the body hurts differently. And apparently.
apparently you can pull things now, like in tendons and stuff. And I'm realizing this going, what? This is insane. And I hate it. Like, I, I hate it. Because part of me goes, man, this is like weakness, like setting into my body. And I hate it. I'm going to rise up against it in every way. It infuriates me in so many ways. Because we want to be seen as strong. We want to be capable. We want to be able. We want to be seen as sufficient. But look at this verse. This passage. Paul says, we have this treasure. He's talking about the gospel. That's what he's been talking about in verses 4, 5, and 6. That we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in this jar of clay. Talking about his body. He doesn't say this invincible titanium vault. Like that's not how he describes us. But he's like, oh, we're like this fragile little jar of clay. Oh, I dropped it. And it breaks. And that, that's, that's his whole point. Look. We're afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven. Like, we're continually under the fires of persecution and suffering, and we're not strong in ourselves. But this is why he says, we have this treasure in this jar of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Like, just to be clear, not to us, he says, to God. I just want you to think about that. It's in our weakness that we reveal the power, the strength, the joy, the love of God in this world. It's not when we stand strong, holding everything together, and people are going, wow, look at him. But it's often in our weakness when people go, how is he still standing? How is it that he has joy? Look at what what has happened in his life. And yet there's a joy in this jar of clay that he has. Why? Because the power belongs to God. This is why we see all throughout church history how is it that the church has primarily advanced through this world? Through what? The martyrdom of the saints. Through what appears weak, God advances the mission. It's not in our power. It's not in us standing before everyone going, guys, just live like me. I'm really strong. But it's, guys, bend your knees like me. We just need more of God's strength. Because it's as we realize our weakness that we experience His strength. And I I believe this. I think there's a lot of Christians who are going through life and they don't know that God is their rock. They don't know the joy of Him being their strength because they're too consumed with trying to be strong themselves. We just think about that. How many Christians are just struggling and angry and frustrated because they're still trying to hold everything together by themselves instead of realizing, wait a minute, I don't have to hold this all together. I don't have to be in control of this. It's okay if I'm weak because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In fact, this is where Paul goes with it. At the end of the letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, He's been having this thorn in his flesh, which there's a huge debate what that is. It might even be the Corinthian church. Like this thorn in his flesh. And he says, God, just take it from me, take it from me, take it from me. And God's like, no, no, no. And so then in verse 9, he says this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Do you notice it? 
I will boast in my weakness so that I experience God's strength. So, there is a connection here. The refusal to understand our weakness is the refusal of God's strength. But as we have here, I want to boast in this weakness. I will hold on to this weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. He's saying, in our weakness, we actually are proclaiming the very glory of God in this world through our lives at that time. And that goes directly against our sinfulness in our lives. goes against mine. I want to be seen strong. I, I fight against any appearance of weakness, and yet these texts remind me, oh wait, it's okay. I don't have to always defend myself. I don't have to always be in control. I don't have to be right. It's okay if I'm misunderstood. But how do I respond and how is it that we simply trust in God's strength each and every day? So I just want to encourage you, whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're in, God is the rock who comforts you. And the perfect picture we have is that Jesus Christ walks for 30 plus years and eventually goes to the cross where he'll be crucified and killed. And yet, what do we see as he's being beaten? What do we see when he's being insulted? What do we see when the very creatures he's made kill him? He doesn't respond in violence. He doesn't retaliate. It's a picture of weakness. And yet, what's accomplished in this weakness? The power of God is demonstrated, is revealed, so that at the death of Christ, he would then overcome sin, death, and Satan. And so that at his death, you and I, when we believe in him, would be saved at what appears to be the weakest, most unjust moment in all of history becomes the most climactic moment in all of history where God's power is put on display and the bride of Christ is secured at that moment. It appears to be weak advances the very kingdom of God. So let's just, just remember that in our lives. It's not about us trying to appear strong. The way we experience God is our rock is not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is an impossibility, and, and us trying to accomplish everything in our strength, but it's by us trusting in God, by us coming to Him in prayer, by us depending upon one another, by us faithfully coming into His Word every day, saying, Lord, I need You as my strength. So whatever you're in right now, whether it's difficult relationships, whether it's health issues, whatever it might be, God is our rock. He's not calling you to overcome those things in your power. He's calling you to trust in them, in his, or trust in his power that you would be strong. So how do we do this? What does this look like? So we come to the center verses of the text. Verses 20 to 30. And I think these are given to us as, as two things. More and more I sit in this. I think it instructs us how do we experience God's strength. Like what does that look like? And then over here, 
How is it that we have assurance that God is our rock? So I think it instructs us how do we live out God's strength? How do we experience it? And how do we have assurance? That's, that's what I think the two things that he's really showing here. And so let me just, let me just say, what do we see? In verses, 20 to, in verses 20 to 24, we see that our faith in Jesus is evidenced by our obedience. I want you to think about what David says about his life. Pay careful attention to verse 20 and verse 24. Here we go. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Okay. So, let me just say what David is not saying. Because we can really misconstrue this. He is not saying he's lived a perfect, blameless life. I mean, we, he, he's, we have the story of David in the Bible where he killed Uriah, took his wife. You know, like, we, this is a man with faults. But yet, he does say in verse 20, you have dealt with me according to my righteousness. Verse 24, so the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He is also not saying that his works have earned him God's favor. He's not saying, well, because I was righteous, God owed me. He's not saying that. So, so what is happening? He's describing what it looks like to be a child of God. He's describing what it looks like to have faith in God. He's describing the life of the Christian. He's describing, this is how I experience God's strength. By walking in obedience to God. I mean, think about it. James chapter 2, verse 18. We preached through James last year. I will show you my faith by my what? Do you remember? One word. By my what? By my works. I will show you my faith by my works. Ephesians chapters 2, 8 through 10. Verses 8 and 9 talk all about the grace of God that we have been saved by. He says, it's not your works. You didn't do it. But it's all by God's grace. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 John 3, 7. John says this, little children, this is He's talking like a father to his He's like, little children, let no one deceive you. Practice righteousness. Or no, he said, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. All throughout the New Testament, we have, we have been saved to live a new way. When we were unbelievers, we lived as unbelievers. But now that we are Christians, we have been saved, united to Christ the fruit of our life reflects the faith in Christ that we have. Not again that we're perfect. So we often, what we do in the church is we underplay works. Okay, we're, we're saved by grace. Let's emphasize grace, which we ought to emphasize grace. But we need to also emphasize we were saved by grace to work, to live, to be obedient to God. And so what David is saying, God has strengthened me as I've walked in obedience to him. 
but he's also saying the assurance that he has. I live faithfully to God. I live blameless. I live in righteousness. I try to keep the very commands of God because I know that he is faithful to those who are faithful. He's faithful to his children. Look at verses 25 through 27, where you see here God is always faithful to those who trust in him. Verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. What's he saying? God, for all those who trust in you, you're faithful to. You love your children. I mean, think about it. There's nothing different than what Paul or what David is saying here than what Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. So those who show mercy receive mercy. Or think about at the end of the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive one another, God is faithful to forgive you. Again, we're not earning but what Jesus is showing, what David is showing, the life of obedience, or describing the life of obedience, what it looks like to have faith in Christ. And when we know that we have faith in Christ, we have assurance of his faithfulness to us. Not that we earn it, not that we're paying God back in any way, but the means in which God strengthens us is as we walk in obedience and the assurance that we have that God is our rock and will strengthen us is one of the things we can say is, do we live like Christ? Am I seeking to obey the very commands of Scripture? Here David is calling us, look, if God is your rock, live obediently to him. Live great with great joy, knowing that God is faithful to always save you, to strengthen you, to provide for you. Just as the father runs to his child and picks him up, for all those who trust in Christ, for all those who walk in obedience to Christ, God is faithful to. I mean, think about it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Wait, what does that mean? For the faithfulness of the Father, he endured the cross. He knew, if I walk to the cross, if I'm obedient to the cross, I will be exalted and glorified. The Father will be glorified, and there will be a people who will be saved. He walked in obedience to God, knowing the faithfulness of the Father. In the same sense, we walk in obedience because of the faithfulness of the Father. In fact, His faithfulness is what frees us to live obedient lives, to live lives that, that we're willing to risk our own safety, whether that means going to another country and sharing the gospel, willing to risk our reputation, or it means here, sharing the gospel with our neighbors, or, or what that could look like here. We are free to love one another because even if the world rejects us, because even if, if our loved ones will reject us, we know that there is one who is always faithful to us, and it's the Father. He's demonstrated it through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, risen him from the grave so that we could have life everlasting. And he's calling us now, experience my strength by coming to my word and walking 
obediently each day. And of course, what you understand is that even the coming to God is all, is all a gift by his strength. Every part of the Christian life is by the grace of his strength for you and me. So all of our obedience is done by his strength. And so let us rejoice that God is our rock, that he's infinitely strong and incredibly present. Let's rejoice that he delights in rising from his throne and coming to our rescue. Let's delight that he will strengthen you and I so that we can be obedient in every situation we're in. Let us rejoice that he will always rescue us and let us us seek to obey him. Not because we're paying him back, but because he's worthy of all worship, worthy of all glory, worthy of all honor, And our lives are now able to be a free sacrifice to him as we live in obedience to him, knowing he's always faithful to us. So let's pray, and then we'll move into communion. Our Father, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're always faithful to us. We thank you for the life of David, which you have displayed for us in Scripture, that we would see how you you have been his rock. And ultimately, Lord, you have sent your son, Jesus, who's the rock of our salvation, that we would know, just as he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan, that we who trust in you are forgiven and are assured of your strength each and every day. Father, may we be encouraged today by your word that you are our strength, our rock, our horn of salvation. And Lord, may that free us to live out in obedience to you. Lord, bless this time as we now take communion and we celebrate what your son Jesus has done for us. Bless this time as we take, uh, as we give of our offerings. May they be done in joy for you, for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, we, we worship you and we honor you in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite the usher.